All right. Welcome to an introduction on World War II. We'll be looking at the beginnings of World War II today and the broad overview of World War II. So as you can see on the uh, title slide that we're starting, if you're following along at home with your PowerPoint, uh, that we're going to uh, cover some key terms today, so make sure that you're familiar with them. So you'll notice the title of the class today is The Good War. This is a nickname that World War II uh, gets. Uh, it comes from uh, oral history of World War II by a scholar, Studs Terkel, and this refers to the fact that many Americans felt that World War II was the rare example of a war that was truly good. Now this may seem weird to you because, well, we generally view war as bad, right? It's destructive, uh, it causes the loss of life. However, many people have a lot of nostalgia for World War II. So let's dig into why this is. For many people, World War II is seen as a good war because it was an example of where the United States was seen as the very clear good guy, right? We were fighting on the right side of history versus a very clear evil. Uh, we tend to think of Nazis uh, and Adolf Hitler uh, as our key example of evil, but as we're going to talk about uh, in this section, the Japanese were initially uh, the target of uh, American uh, ire and anger over their attack on Pearl Harbor. And if you look at later conflicts that the United States engages in militarily after World War II, then you start to see why people are so attracted to this clear good versus clear evil. Because the United States will get involved in places like Korea in the early 1950s in a conflict that still technically isn't over. Uh, they never formally signed a peace treaty. In Vietnam, throughout the 1960s uh, and early 70s, although as we'll talk about later this semester, we start getting involved in Vietnam as early as the 1950s. Uh, and that, again, didn't really end well from the American perspective. Uh, we'll later get involved in places like uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, and we're still, as of 2020 at least, involved in Iraq and Afghanistan in places that we've been at war and had troops for now two decades. So when you look at the track record of the United States post-World War II, uh, the conflicts that we get in are far messier uh, and longer and very, my apologies for the noise, very clearly uh, ambiguous. Um, were we on the right side when we were fighting Vietnam? Because that conflict started with the Vietnamese trying to gain independence from France. And we'll talk about how we got dragged into that a little bit later. Part of the nostalgia factor then is explained by what scholars call victory culture. So in other words, because the United States later on is so uh, concerned, right, with the fact that we are no longer seen around the world as a clear good guy, that we have ambiguous ends to some of these conflicts we're involved in, that we therefore cling really hard uh, to World War II as proof that even if the later conflicts we're involved in are messy, at least our heart's in the right place, right? That we have good intentions. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, you might remember at the very beginning of the film showing an elderly man who's at a cemetery in Normandy, uh, where those who died during the D-Day invasion are buried and he collapses to the ground and he asks his wife, have I lived 
a good life, right? Uh, trying to kind of get reassurance that uh, his survival, his intentions in, find, in fighting this war uh, were good and that the outcome of this war was worth it. Uh, to his perspective. So we're going to talk about how World War II was not all sunshine and roses and kittens, that this nostalgia that we remember World War II by oftentimes is colored uh, by rose-colored glasses. So in other words, uh, this tendency to remember World War II fondly oftentimes makes it harder for us to see what the historical reality actually was. As we're going to talk about, there's a lot of disruptions in the United States during World War II. Not everybody puts aside their differences and works together uh, for the war uh, to come to a successful conclusion. And if anything, it's all the more impressive that the United States manages uh, to be on the winning side of World War II, given all of the problems that we were dealing with on the home front. So World War II is seen as a very different kind of war. If World War I is the first truly global war, World War II took that global nature to a whole other level. As Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously stated, this war is a new kind of war. It is warfare in terms of every continent, every island, every sea, every air lane. So what Roosevelt is saying is, in part because of the evolving technology of war that had happened post-World War I, really the United States is no longer as isolated as it once was. In fact, as we're going to talk about during our coverage of World War II, the United States is not exempt from attack by enemy forces. Uh, parts of Alaska are occupied by the Japanese for periods of World War II. Uh, we're also going to talk about the probably more familiar to you attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and other U.S. territories, including the Philippines, were also invaded and occupied during World War II. So partly what changes this notion of war is the airplane. Uh, the airplane goes from being used mostly for reconnaissance during World War I and occasional dogfighting to now being the delivery method for bombs and civilians becoming acceptable targets of war because of this attitude of total war that we're going to talk about. So World War II is global warfare on the next level. In comparison to World War One, so let's talk about how World War Two gets started. So a lot of the roots of World War Two actually come from uh, the aftermath of World War One and the reality of the Great Depression, which, as we've talked about earlier this semester, is not just affecting the United States, but is a truly global economic depression. But really, the immediate factors for the world going to war again is the rise of fascism, particularly in three nation states, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Italy was actually the very first fascist state in the world. Benito Mussolini uh, and his supporters, the Black Shirts, uh, overthrew the Italian government in the early 1920s and established a fascist state in Italy. Japan also started drifting towards fascism, particularly driven by their military in the late 20s and early 1930s. While Japan does have an emperor at this time, he is more of a figurehead. Kind of consider him to be the equivalent of, say, Queen Elizabeth II of England, uh, in that he's there, he's royal, but he's really not doing anything in terms of day-to-day -day governance. And then in Germany, 
Adolf Hitler, who was an Austrian of German descent, had actually tried to uh, overthrow the German government like Mussolini had done in Italy. Um, his first attempt in Munich, the Birhol Pusch, uh, is now the site of a hard rock cafe, weirdly enough. But that was unsuccessful. That landed uh, Adolf Hitler with uh, a sentence to serve. And it's during uh, this time that he's inspired to write his memoir, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. So Adolf Hitler and Nazis, the Nazi party in Germany, will gain power peacefully through the electoral process. They'll start to gain more momentum at the polls in the late 1920s, and then Adolf Hitler is legally appointed as Chancellor of Germany in 1933. So that's a common myth about Adolf Hitler, that he seized power in Germany. He tried that. Didn't work the first time. So he went through peaceful and legal methods when he finally did ultimately gain control. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about fascism? So fascism is a form of extreme politics in which we have a very strong political state, a strong government, and a very strong leader with a lot of power and not a lot of checks on that power. So fascism is an example of what we would call an authoritarian or, or totalitarian state. The difference between fascism and communism, like we see in the Soviet Union in the same time period, is pretty much in their social politics. Fascism is extremely conservative. Communism is extremely liberal. Okay, but they're both totalitarian states. Fascists believe that a liberal representative democracy in which uh, issues of importance are debated, discussed, voted on, um, talked about to achieve some sort of consensus, is decadent and weak. It's not assertive enough. It's not powerful enough. And so fascism, again, tends to give most of its power and its authority and its decision-making capabilities directly to the upper echelons of government, and in particular, the leader of the state. Fascism is extremely nationalist, what we call ultra-nationalism, right? so extreme form of patriotism and national pride. Fascism is also very much ethnocentric. So ethnocentrism means privileging one particular ethnicity or people group over others, and depicting, in the case of fascism, that people group as the most evolved and the most superior and the most perfect example of humans. You probably associate this idea of ethnic superiority already with the Nazis. So Nazi Germany um, really talked about this people called the Aryans. So they actually co-opt the name of a people group uh, from ancient history who actually migrated from what is today southern Russia into India. And this is why the swastika is actually not German. It's originally a much more ancient symbol uh, meaning peace. So the Nazis co-opt this. So if you see a swastika that predates the 1920s, do you know that it means something completely different? It's not associated with Nazis until uh, the Nazi party in Germany takes it over. So the story that the Germans told were that the Aryans were the superior race, that they were Aryans. And ideally, as an Aryan, you wanted to have white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. And that because they were the most superior, the most evolved, you wanted to encourage people who had Aryan ancestry to have lots of kids. Okay, This is why uh, German mothers were actually awarded military medals based on the number of kids they had. And you also want to, on the flip side, discourage people who did not uh, meet that definition of Aryan ancestry to minimize 
the number of kids that they were having. So what does this look like? Well, in the case of Nazi Germany, this means they're going to limit access to abortion and birth control to ensure a high birth rate uh, for the Aryan people. And it also means they're going to practice uh, selective sterilization, or in some cases, euthanasia, or uh, forced killing of folks that they deemed unfit to reproduce, whether that meant belonging to a particular ethnic group, as they eventually will do in the Holocaust with Jews and the Roma people, or political group like, for example, communists, religious groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, or uh, people who are seen as having physical defects, like, for example, a physical or mental disability. So this is eugenics, which we've talked about earlier this semester, right? The idea that you can scientifically manage human population. Japan also exhibits this ethnocentrism, but here, in, in their case, obviously, the superior ethnicity would be people of Japanese ancestry. We also have, with fascism, a very strong emphasis on the military okay, and on building a very large uh, very technologically advanced and very big military, in part because fascism is also incredibly territorially aggressive. Okay. This is where we get into World War II, because all of these three uh, fascist states that we're mentioning had ambitions of power and territorial conquest. Now, this is they give slightly different reasons for why they want to expand their territory, but again, they all embark on this aggressive uh, campaign of expansion. So in the case of Italy, Benito Mussolini tells the Italian people that he wants to restore the glory of the old Roman Empire, that we're going to get ourselves out of the economic depression, we're going to return to greatness by rebuilding the ancient Roman Empire. So that meant that Italy started to invade and try to conquer areas that were historically part of the Roman Empire, like Libya and Northern Africa and Albanian and South, Albania and Southeastern Europe. But that also meant that they just tried to conquer areas that were somewhat adjacent and weren't historically part of the Roman Empire. Ethiopia, which was one of only two African nations to have never been colonized by uh, Westerners, was invaded by Italy starting in 1935 even though it had never been historically controlled by the Roman Empire. Japan gets its start with territorial aggression far earlier uh, than the other two nations. Japan will uh, use uh, an incident in which uh, there is uh, sabotage of Japanese-owned railroads in the Manchuria region, today part of China, then a region in between China and Korea, as an excuse to invade and occupy Manchuria in 1931. Spoiler alert, the Japanese sabotaged their own railroads so that they would have an excuse for expansion into Manchuria. Japan also boldly invades China in 1937. At the time, China is in the middle of a civil war between nationalists and communists. The civil war is put on hold to deal with Japanese expansion. Uh, Japanese conquest of China is very horrifying, especially for civilians. The case of Nanjing uh, is probably the most infamous in the Japanese conquest of China. In Nanjing, hundreds of thousands of civilians are killed, whether due to bombing raids, uh, attacks being used as target practice by Japanese troops, uh, hunger, disease. Um, 
a lot of this was actually recorded by uh, Americans who stayed behind in a mission to try to help the Chinese civilians. Uh, a lot of them kept diaries, and some of them also uh, managed to take very uh, secret video recordings of some of the atrocities they witnessed by the Japanese troops in China. Japan also tried to expand across the Pacific, particularly to help the Japanese Navy, and that's actually going to be the flashpoint between Japan and the United States, as we'll talk about. Lastly, we have Germany. Adolf Hitler uh, starts talking about a concept called Lebensraum, or living space. Think of it kind of like the American expression, elbow room. The idea is he wants to unite all people of German ancestry under the nation state of Germany, and he wants to have enough territory and resources for Germans to really prosper. So in pursuit of those two goals, Adolf Hitler will... Uh, declare a union or Anschluss with Austria, his homeland, in 1938, and in the same space will also forcibly occupy and take over the Sudetenland uh, region, which was a region of Czechoslovakia, which was occupied by people of mostly German descent. So Europe responded to this by essentially doing nothing. Everyone was very paranoid about getting involved in another world war only 20 years after the last one had ended. So they basically uh, chose to adopt a strategy known as appeasement. The idea was they basically told Hitler and the Nazis, you shouldn't have done that. Particularly, you shouldn't have taken a whole region of Czechoslovakia away. But so long as you pinky swear not to take over anybody else, you can keep that territory. Adolf Hitler said, sure, sure, sure. And pretty much crosses his fingers behind his back. Because uh, as we're going to see, World War II will start in Europe when Adolf Hitler breaks that promise and invades Poland. So this brings us to the question of when does World War II start? It depends on what region you're looking at and what nation you're looking at. So the war in Europe starts in 1939 with the invasion of Poland by Germany in September of 1939. This violates Hitler's agreement in, in appeasement that he would not uh, invade any other European territory. So 1939 is a very common start date that you'll see in a lot of textbooks for World War II. The other date you'll see, especially in United States history textbooks, is 1941, because this is the year in which both the United States and the USSR, or the Soviet Union, will invade or rather will get involved in World War II. The Soviet Union will get involved first in June when Germany decides to invade Russia, proving that Adolf Hitler did not study history. That didn't work out for Napoleon Bonaparte, and it's not going to work out for him either. Uh, you don't invade Russia in the winter. Just big world history takeaway. Don't do it. It doesn't end well. And then the United States will enter World War II after Japan bombs uh, their naval bases across the Pacific, but most notoriously at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. However, if we look at the Asian uh, part of the war, we could roll back the start of World War II to the early 1930s. We could roll it back to 1931, when Japan first conquers Manchuria, or 1937, when Japan invades China. So once World War II heats up in both Asia and Europe, but before American involvement in 1941, so especially after 1939, uh, when Germany invades Poland and Europe goes to war, the United States wants nothing to do with this. Okay? The American people really embraced a concept known as isolationism. 
The only foreign policy they were really concerned with at this point in time was that with Latin America. So the good neighbor policy was adopted by Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a softer version. I apologize if you hear dogs barking. A softer version of uh, the earlier progressive era policy. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to roll back the idea of military occupation uh, in Latin America by removing troops from Haiti and Nicaragua and encouraging Cuba to repeal the Platt Amendment, which gave us the right to intervene in their affairs militarily. And he focused instead on positive associations, particularly pursuing trade agreements that would be beneficial for both nations. So this is why we call it the good neighbor policy. Don't confuse it with state farms, insurances, commercial. Now, the good neighbor policy is solely focused on economic benefit. So we don't usually stop to ask questions at that point in time of whether a particular Latin American nation was a democracy or had good record of human rights. So this is why we continued to support, for example, Nicaragua, uh, where the Somoza family ruled with an iron fist. When asked about U.S. support of the Somozas, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. So Americans are more concerned with trade in Latin America, which makes sense given the Great Depression, right? We're trying to get the economy back on its feet. And... We really didn't want to get involved in another world war. A series of hearings in Congress in 1934 and 1935 on why the United States got involved in World War I highlighted for most Americans for the first time the role of financial ties and loans uh, that got the United States involved in World War I. And so for many Americans, uh, this enhanced this notion that World War I had done nothing good for the United States and that we needed to stay out of any future conflict. Because of that, the United States in 1935 starts to pass a series of acts known as the Neutrality Acts. This was trying to prevent us from getting sucked in to another world war. These acts forbid uh, Americans from traveling on ships belonging to a foreign nation at war, and it also forbid American companies from selling arms or weapons, or any other materials of war uh, to nations at war. So we're trying to avoid a repeat um, of the Lusitania, for example, from World War I. When the war in Europe starts, however, more and more Americans become convinced that we will eventually, even if we don't want to, get dragged into the war. After Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939, uh, the Axis powers formally formed, made up of Germany, Japan, and Italy. And by the end of 1940, the only allied power, with the allies at this point uh, being China, Great Britain, and France, the only allied power still standing at that point in Europe was Great Britain. This is partly due to Germany's adoption of Blitzkrieg or Lightning War tactics to quickly roll through and occupy Western Europe. And Great Britain was being pummeled with a bombing campaign known as the Blitz. The Germans were trying to bomb them into submission. By 1940, Roosevelt, looking at the situation in Great Britain, had uh, convinced Congress that we should allow the sale of weapons to Great Britain and China through a cash and carry basis. So the idea being that we could sell weapons of war, but they'd have to pay us immediately in cash and arrange for the transport, again, trying to minimize 
Americans getting involuntarily sucked in. FDR won re-election for the third time that year in 1940, and he declared the United States would be an arsenal of democracy. So he's still not saying we're going to get involved, but we're going to be prepared. We're going to help out our allies across the globe. This is also the year in which the first draft, I apologize if you hear that squeaky toy in the background. It's hard to do this at home with dogs. Anyways, this is the year that the first draft is implemented since the end of World War I. Now, there were a lot of Americans who were very alarmed by the moves of, of Congress and the Roosevelt administration uh, towards gearing up war production. And probably the most popular expression of opposition to the war is the America First Committee. The America First Committee had the misfortune of being headed up by many Nazi sympathizers, uh, like uh, Charles Lindbergh, the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, Father Charles Coughlin, who was a Catholic priest with a very popular radio program out of Detroit, and Henry Ford, who was very famously anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. Despite public opposition to gearing up for war, the United States accelerates uh, their position by mid-1941 with the Lend-Lease Act. This is established after the Soviet Union enters the war, and this gives the United States more leverage to essentially lend out uh, equipment to Britain, China, and the Soviet Union with the promise that they would pay later. Uh, there's considerable support at this point in the top levels of Roosevelt's administration uh, for going to war, but the public remains very reluctant. The other thing that's happening in the summer of 1941 is that the United States is trying to deal with aggressive Japanese expansion in the Pacific. And one of the ways that the United States comes up with trying to limit Japanese expansion in the Pacific is to declare an embargo on oil. This is a big deal. Japan is an island nation. They don't have a lot of resources. And 80% of their oil supply was imported from the United States. So when the United States shuts off the supply of oil, which is crucial to the Japanese war machine, Japan starts preparing for war. This is going to lead to a simultaneous attack on U.S. military installations across the Pacific. Most famously, the attack on Pearl Harbor. On the morning of December 7, 1941, over 2,000 American servicemen are killed, 18 ships and 187 planes are completely destroyed in a surprise raid on the Pearl Harbor naval base in Hawaii, which was the uh, center for the Pacific Fleet, the home base. Other attacks on U.S. military installations occurred simultaneously at places like Midway uh, and Manila in the Philippines, which was still a U.S. territory in 1941. But because of the international dateline, those attacks technically took place on December 8th. An early draft of Roosevelt's famous message to Congress, uh, where he states December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, uh, an early draft actually included a reference to the attack on the Philippines. However, he scrubbed that out. Okay, and Hawaii was the sole focus of that speech. The Japanese had attacked Hawaii in part because they hoped to buy time. The idea was by attacking Pearl Harbor, they could significantly damage the U.S. fleet. Particularly, they were looking at two high-profile targets, fuel reserves and the aircraft carriers. 
they somehow missed the fuel reserves in their bombing campaign. And then with the aircraft carriers, they were all out to sea. And so they were not damaged at that time. The other issue with Pearl Harbor from a Japanese point of view was that Pearl Harbor is only 40 feet deep uh, at its deepest. So that meant that many of the ships uh, that were attacked and were sunk were able to be raised, repaired, and sent back into service fairly quickly. The most uh, notorious example of a ship that was unable to be raised and repaired is the USS Arizona. The Arizona sunk rather quickly after a uh, ordnance went through into its magazine, causing a massive explosion. Today, the Arizona rests still on the bottom of Pearl Harbor, and a memorial there uh, memorizes or memorializes or remembers the servicemen who were trapped and died uh, in the sinking of the Arizona. And the Arizona still is leaking oil, which you can see if you go visit the memorial there. So with the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States officially will enter the war the following day on December 8th, 1941, declaring war on Japan. And when the United States declares war on Japan, because Japan is part of the Axis Alliance, Italy and Germany also declare war on the United States. Once the United States enters the war, Their primary focus is going to be on Japan, since after all, Japan had attacked American soil across the Pacific. The initial phase of the Pacific War will not go very well for the United States. If you look at a map of Japanese occupation of Asia and the Pacific at its greatest extent in mid-1942, Japan expanded into areas of uh, the Aleutian Islands and Alaska, almost in the middle of the Pacific, uh, approaching Midway. In the southeast, Japan uh, controlled half of Papua New Guinea and came very close to Australia. And then on the continent, they expanded uh, throughout Southeast Asia and China, pushing up against British-occupied India. So for the United States, This is a big swath of territory that they have to defend. And in particular, an early point of Japanese military success on American territory happened in the Philippines. In the Philippines, the initial attack on Manila on American military installations on December 8th, 1941 was followed by a full-fledged invasion of the Philippines. In the end, American and Filipino troops were forced to surrender to the Japanese, resulting in the Bataan Death March where 78,000 American and Filipino troops uh, were captured and forced on a death march to prison camps. Many soldiers died both on the march to these camps and in these camps due to horrible conditions. This led uh, many of these men to adopt a sort of unofficial theme song as they were on this march. We are the battling bastards of Bataan. No mama, no papa no Uncle Sam. So the notion these soldiers had was that they basically had been abandoned, hung out to dry um, by the United States. The United States initially talked about what they should do in their Pacific strategy. Should the focus be on liberating the Philippines, which was home to millions of people, which was an American territory where a lot of servicemen had been captured and kept in these horrible conditions, Or should the focus be on trying to attack Japan directly? The United States ends up uh, curbing the expansion of Japan 
uh, at least as far as into the Eastern Pacific, at the Battle of Midway in 1942, inflicting very heavy damage on the Japanese Navy. And at that point, the United States decided that the best possible strategy for their success in the Pacific was what they called island hopping. So in other words, the liberation of the Philippines would be put on hold, and the focus would be on gaining territory, island territory, back from the Japanese, trying to get closer and closer to Japan so that we could conceivably use these islands as a jumping-off point for long-range bombing campaigns against the Japanese. Guadalcanal was one of the first islands that was part of this island hopping campaign. Uh, the battle at Guadalcanal lasted over a period of about four months in late 1942 and early 1943, and Guadalcanal demonstrated that this is going to be a very long-term strategy. The United States realized that Japanese forces were very much dug in on these islands. They had basically made them into fortresses, and the closer that Americans got uh, in terms of geographically to Japan on these island campaigns, the more resistance they encountered from the Japanese, the bloodier and the longer these battles took. So this is going to be a strategy that continued uh, throughout uh, 1943 and 1944. The United States also now had to deal with being at war with Europe because Germany and Italy had declared war on the United States. And when the United States formally enters the war in Europe in 1941, Great Britain and the Soviet Union in particular say, wonderful, welcome to the war. Once again, you're late. And you always arrive late to the World War. And it would be really helpful for us if you could please invade, I don't know, France. In particular, the Soviet Union, while Adolf Hitler will eventually lose to the Russian winter, was losing a lot of people uh, due to the Nazi invasion of Russia. And so the Soviet Union really wants the United States to open up a Western front and to force Germany to have to send troops to divide their troops between Russia and France. And the United States goes, you know what? We got a better idea. We're going to invade Africa, to which the rest of the Allies go, really, really. The United States' logic for invading North Africa was that Italy was the weakest link of the Axis powers. So if you invaded North Africa and you took back territory from Germany and Italy there, then you could use that as a springboard to launch a full-fledged attack against Italy and knock them out of the war. They were in fact right. Italy was the weakest link. Italy has a habit of switching sides every time there's a world war. Uh, so this is what we call Operation Torch, this notion that we're going to invade and occupy North Africa, and that will allow us to springboard from there a campaign against Italy. But if the United States is going to be successful in invading North Africa, we have to be able to get troops and supplies over there. And just like in World War I, the Germans are very, very strong uh, with their submarine fleet in the Atlantic. The Allies, fortunately, however had a very new technology called sonar. They also had a new technology called radar at this time. And this will eventually enable the Allies to win what's called the Battle of the Atlantic and control vital shipping lanes between the United States and Europe. Once North Africa was secure, this helped to launch the invasion of Italy in 1943. Italians very quickly turned on Benito Mussolini. In fact, they uh, hung him in a public square and spit on his body. However, Germans were still occupying parts of Italy. So the, even though the Italians officially switched sides and joined the Allies after the death of Mussolini, 
the Allies still had to get the German troops out of Italy. Finally, the United States uh, took heed of the request for a Western Front from the Allies, and the D-Day invasion on June 6, 1944, landed 200,000 soldiers from the Allies onto the beaches of Normandy, the coastal region of France. Another one million soldiers followed, making this one of the largest military operations in world history. So now, as of June 1944, in Europe, the United States was now helping the Allies with a two-front war, with the Soviet Union closing in on Germany from the east, and the French, the British, the Americans, and other Allies closing in from the west. 